Welcome to Beyond the Bubble, a podcast about health equity. We started this podcast because we wanted to find a way to share what we've been learning about issues in our community in order to create dialogue and inspire change. The purpose of Beyond the Bubble is to expand from your own perspective, your sphere of knowledge, and just learn more about the issues in the community around you. Go beyond your bubble. I'm Olsen Ha. I'm Swayta Balaji. And welcome to Beyond the Bubble. So in this inaugural episode, we're going to be talking about racial disparities and really the inequities surrounding the COVID vaccine in Northeast Ohio. So we'll be examining the disparities and who's getting the vaccine, how access to the vaccine has emphasized certain inequities, and the reasons behind vaccine hesitancy and how they reflect a rocky history between underserved communities and medical systems. We pursued these questions in order to figure out What do disparities in vaccine access and vaccine hesitancy reflect about the healthcare system in Northeast Ohio, in our state and the nation? So on May 13th, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, kind of shocked the country with their update for fully vaccinated individuals. So people two weeks after their second dose of Pfizer or Moderna vaccine or the single dose Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So Dr. Rochelle Walensky, director of the CDC, gave this update during a COVID-19 briefing saying, quote, anyone who is fully vaccinated can participate in indoor and outdoor activities, large or small, without wearing a mask or physical distancing. All right, Wilson, what was your like initial reaction to hearing this new recommendation? Finally, you know, (laughs) I mean, I've been wearing my the same mask for a whole year now. I love my green reusable (laughs) my green reusable mask but you know it gets tiring you know and I think that it was like really relieving to see that well finally we're getting out of this but at the same time I kind of was a little worried because I don't know who is and who isn't vaccinated you know in Ohio not even 50% of the population has gotten their first dose yet and we weren't the only ones feeling this mix of emotions because public health professionals were feeling this as well One of the biggest concerns that I I heard being raised was it was almost um, a little careless to to make such an abrupt transition that we don't have the same proportion of individuals fully vaccinated. It's not uniformly distributed across the country. There are places where vaccination rates are lower. Um, There are age groups that aren't even vaccinated yet. So for parents with young children, who want to keep their children safe and and have their children in public spaces, um, those children should not be unmasked if they have any concerns of um, becoming infected. And and so I don't think that that message was tailored um, appropriately. I think that it was it was it came off as sounding too much like a universal recommendation. My name is Jennifer Cullen. I am a PhD in cancer epidemiology. I currently work at Case Western Reserve University, where I am a professor in the Department of Population and Quantitative Health Sciences, as well as an associate director in the Case Comprehensive Cancer Center uh, as an AD of Cancer Population Sciences. So clearly this new CDC recommendation stirred some controversy, and many people have said that it really should only apply to communities that have a substantial proportion of its population vaccinated. And the main argument is that if there aren't enough people in a community vaccinated, it's not as safe even for fully vaccinated people to not wear their masks. 
And these communities that have a substantial proportion of its population vaccinated also happen to be the majority white and affluent communities in Ohio. And because of that, this new CDC guideline kind of raises issues of vaccine inequity. And that's exactly what we're examining today. So who in Ohio is getting the vaccine and who isn't? What are the issues surrounding access to the vaccine that affect certain people's ability to get it? And what's the role of vaccine hesitancy? These are the questions we'll be exploring in this episode, so stick around. So, let's start with a rundown of the basic statistics surrounding who's getting vaccinated in Ohio. As of May 27th, the nonprofit organization USA Facts tells us that 39% of the state has been vaccinated and 45% has gotten at least one dose. And here comes the focus of this episode, the disparities we're seeing between racial groups and who's getting vaccinated. So about 38% of white Ohioans have been fully vaccinated. 51% of Asian and Pacific Islander Ohioans have been fully vaccinated. 40% of Native American Ohioans, 26% of Hispanic or Latino Ohioans, and 23.5% of Black Ohioans. Now, yes, that is a lot of percentages, but... What's important to note here are the racial groups that have significantly lower percentages of their community vaccinated compared to other racial groups. And here, the statistics tell us that a lower proportion of Latino and Black communities in Ohio are getting vaccinated compared to the proportion of individuals of other racial groups. So we can really explain these dark disparities by understanding two major things. One, being inequitable access to the vaccine, and two, being hesitancy to receive it. So let's start with understanding the inequitable access part to receiving the vaccine. So starting off with booking your vaccine appointment, when you think about what things you need access to when you book your vaccine appointment, and you can think back to what your experience was like if you've gotten the COVID vaccine, you need access to good Internet. You need to be fairly proficient in English and have good Internet literacy. And you need time because vaccine appointments fill up super quickly. If you may not have Uh, technological literacy and not maybe know how to navigate a computer, that can be a barrier to you getting a vaccine. Or if you don't have a computer, we know that there has been um, a lot of inaccess for families for technology. And so if you don't have a computer, how can you make your appointment? And if you don't have health insurance, you probably don't have a primary care provider. So who can you call to even talk to about getting a vaccine if you don't have a computer? So my name is Tanisha Fair. I am a research assistant at a think tank in downtown Cleveland. It's called the Center for Community Solutions. She co-wrote an article on the Center for Community Solutions blog titled, quote, Inability to Miss Work Contributed to Vaccine Hesitancy and Likely Lower Vaccination Rates. So here you're really seeing how this inequitable access piece ties into hesitancy to get the vaccine, with both possibly contributing to lower vaccinations. But we'll get into the vaccine hesitancy a little bit later. So the research took a map of Cuyahoga County, divided them into zip codes, and in one analysis found the percentage of the population of each zip code area that was vaccinated. And in another analysis found the percentage of the population, 16 years and older, with an annual income of $35,000 or less. Now, this research found that the areas of the county where there are the most amount of low-wage workers also happen to be the areas with the lowest vaccination rates. The main explanation for this correlation is that it is much harder for low-wage and hourly workers to take time off work, which means you have less time to spend booking your vaccination appointment, which is already pretty difficult to find. 
you have less time to drive to your vaccination site. God forbid, if you experiment side effects of the vaccine, that affects your ability to go to work. And you really don't have time for that. If you take off half a day because you're ill or something happens and you don't have sick pay, that could be up to your monthly spending for your fruits and veggies for the month. Or if you take off two days, that's a month's worth of gas, which means you may not be able to make it to work, which means you have to take off more time. Um, Three days of unpaid sick time is your monthly utilities budget. So now you can't pay for electric or heat. And then a week could be your entire monthly rent or mortgage payment, which means that affects your housing. Here comes this element of race into these vaccine disparities. The same areas of the county that have lower vaccination rates and more low-wage workers are also the communities that have more people of color than the affluent communities with higher vaccination rates. Yeah, and these areas have vaccination rates below 28% and over 66% low-wage or hourly workers. These are also the communities that are, according to the website Ohio Demographics, 40 to 90% Black. So I remember how I was helping my parents book their vaccine appointment and I tried for a few days and I just like kind of got lucky one day at 12.30, 1 in the morning when I was able to find them an appointment at Rite Aid. Wilson, how did you book your vaccine appointment? So I had the privilege of my parents kind of taking that over for me. Um, They were able to get a um, vaccination for me and my sister at the Wolstein Center um, near Cleveland State, um, downtown Cleveland. Um, one thing that that's important to note here is that I don't live near Wolstein. It's about like a, it was like a 40 minute drive for me. Yeah. And it's difficult because like, first of all, my parents don't really have that much time to, you know, sit around and like try and find an open vaccine appointment. But I did. So I was able to take that time to book it for them and also book my own vaccine appointment. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you're an hourly or low-wage earner, you don't have the time to try again and again every day to finally get lucky one day like I did and and book your vaccine appointment, Um, let alone take time off to get it or stay at home if you're experiencing side effects. And if you're living in a majority non-white community, your community is probably more likely to have difficulty in accessing the vaccine. Now, think about the website that most Ohioans have used and are using to book their vaccine appointments. It's the coronavirus.ohio.gov website by the Ohio Department of Health. To even navigate a website, you need good internet. And there are major disparities in broadband internet access in Ohio where communities of color don't have as high quality or just don't have access to high-speed internet. But honestly, we could do an entire episode on just that. To understand what's on this Ohio vaccination website, you need to know English because the website isn't translated into any other language. Offering access to the vaccine in multiple languages is extremely important. If it's in a totally other uh, different language, how would you know what to believe, right? There is a a huge um, need for information to be readily available in Spanish, right? Regarding the vaccine cost, the safety, and how to get it, right? Is getting the vaccine um, safe? for me, you know, so having those answers within their in their language readily accessible should be a top priority. 
So I'm Mary Lee Santiago. I am the Director of Education and Training for Metro Health Institute for Hope. And the work that I do within the Institute for Hope is be that convener to address um, social determinant of health related issues from a policy perspective, um, from a research perspective and evaluation. A lot of people have to know about what exactly the COVID vaccine is in order to get it and get the information as to how it's being offered, where it's being offered. One issue is that some people don't even know that it's free to get the vaccine. And a lot of the information that we think is basic, that we that's kind of like common knowledge at this point related to the COVID vaccine, that access to, the, to that information has been barred for people who aren't very literate in English, who don't know how to speak English or who can't understand it. And another thing about, like, you know, providing vaccine information in languages besides English is that you just show that you care about communities in Ohio that don't speak English. If it's not in my language, that kind of communicates to me, kind of, you know, you don't care about me. And this is really for the white people. My name is Jamal Trice. I am uh, employed with the YMCA of Greater Cleveland. Uh, I work for uh, what's called the Whitehaven branch. Uh, I'm a monitor. And I, uh, uh, what Whitehaven does is they provide transitional housing for homeless men and women who are both homeless and also uh, chemically dependent. So up till now, we've been talking about barriers to booking your vaccine appointment. But we haven't quite talked about what happens after you book your appointment. First, you need reliable transportation to get to your vaccine site. So being low income probably means you don't have access to a car. Right? We're thinking about people who use public transportation to get to their jobs, to the grocery store, etc. To get a vaccination, which may be quite far, means using public transportation to get there will take a really long time. And if you can't take time off work, and so we're starting to see these kind of barriers overlap, right? If you can't take time off work, it's difficult to get to your vaccination site in a timely manner if you don't have a car. However, we have seen that... Organizations are making effort to kind of alleviate this obstacle of equity. Um, we know that the RTA is offering free rides to vaccination sites, and also Uber is also providing free rides for people um, to go to their vaccination site as well. So moving on from transportation, another issue is that sometimes there aren't enough like vaccination sites in your own community to be able to get a vaccine. So when we're thinking about low-income communities and communities of color, there are lots of vaccination sites dedicated to improving access to the vaccine within their community, right? But what happens, unfortunately, is that a lot of white affluent uh, people tend to take over these vaccination sites to get the vaccine for themselves. So what ultimately happens is that, you know, so like there's a vaccine vaccination site in your own community, but you're seeing people not in your community, people that actually have better access than you do to get the vaccine, taking over those sites. And so you don't even have a place to get the vaccine. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the reasons why we're seeing disparities in the number of people um, who are getting the vaccine by race, because you know, we see that trend in terms of like the lo low wage workers and communities of color. You are much more inclined to not get the vaccine if you can't even get access to the clinics that are in your area. But there are some good things happening. For example, with the American Rescue Plan. Here's Tanisha Fair talking about what the American Rescue Plan is doing to improve vaccine access for low wage and hourly earners. So the American Rescue Plan was announced by Biden in April. And basically, employers that have fewer than 500 employees 
will receive what's called a paid leave tax credit. It covers the cost for employers to provide paid time off to employees so that they are able to use that time off to get vaccinated or to be able to take off time if they happen to get side effects that make it hard for them to work. And so it's it's an incentive for employers to provide that paid time off because there's less of a cost coming out of their pockets in order to do that. Another really beneficial thing that is happening in our community is the use of targeted outreach. My name is Waverly Willis. I am the owner of Urban Cuts Barbershop. We use our shops as a vehicle to promote different issues that affect the community as far as health, uh, literacy, uh, career training, things of that nature. I had offered to give the vaccine at my both my locations, but initially the powers that be told me that my venues were too small. And what I told them was, you people with all of these degrees and your plaques and stuff on your wall, you know, you can't figure out it's, it's a forgotten population out there that, you know, they can't speak English. They don't have the patience to navigate this uh, COVID-19 booking site. Some people don't have phones at all. And then lastly, most importantly to me, they don't trust you guys, but they do trust me. Yeah, I am really inspired by his story because I think that although he has a history of being um, very involved in terms of helping people take accountability of their health, I think this is a super impactful thing for him to do, especially with those issues of vaccine clinics being so hard to access or the fact that appointments were so hard to get. But I also think that when you have a vaccine clinic um, in such an intimate place in your community, such as a barbershop, that made community members way more inclined to get the vaccine, which, I mean, at the end of the day, we want as many people to get vaccinated as possible. So I think that his influence, not just as a community member, but being able to put a vaccine clinic where it was, was really helpful in terms of getting more people in the community to get vaccinated. But you don't need to own a barbershop or even be an adult to be able to have an impact on vaccine equity. And here's routines for vaccines from in school comes in. And here's our very own Miss Becker. My name is Jenny Becker and I teach um, mostly 11th and 12th graders at Hawkins School. I teach um, biology and environmental science. I t- actually started by helping a coworker um, get an appointment for her daughter. She felt overwhelmed by the system. I think her daughter told some friends and all of a sudden I was making like dozens of appointments for kids in the senior class. Um, and teaching them how to make appointments. And it snowballed from there. A couple kids um, said that they wanted to help. And we volunteered. Um, a handful of kids and I volunteered at MedWorks. And they actually partnered with an organization called Greater Cleveland Congregations. And they relied on volunteers almost entirely for all of those clinics. So volunteer nurses and doctors that gave the shots, um, volunteers that ran the parking lots, the check-in, um, all kinds of monitoring. Um, I happen to have a friend who works for MedWorks, and she was short volunteers because it happened so fast. And so I was like, well, we're on spring break, and I know a lot of kids who are interested in this. <laughs> so we sort of started there, um, and then... Um, made a intake form so anyone could say, hey, I'm looking for a vaccine for so-and-so and I don't know how to get it. Could you get it for us? Um, so what we basically did was learn the system. We learned all the websites 
all the places that had vaccines, what time they released appointments, what information you needed to book an appointment at a certain place. And, and basically, we taught other students. So I think what's wonderful about this is the fact that, and like I was saying earlier, you don't need to be an adult to be able to have an, an effect on improving vaccine equity, right? You know, because like as teenagers, we have pretty good internet literacy. We can navigate ourselves throughout the internet. And leveraging our own skills to help people is so important. And I think there's so many ways that we can help people book their appointments just simply by you know, knowing the ways of the internet, by being proficient in English, things like that that seem so basic to us but can have such an impact on community members. I mean, going off what you said, Sueda, you don't have to um, have any like special talents to really do this. Just use the skills that you have. And I think that isn't a great, this is a great example of kind of taking your taking your privilege and just helping others. Um, you know, I think that th- this appointment I don't know, debacle <laughs> was, I mean, very intimidating to a lot of people. And I think that having community members to help you through that process is extremely comforting. And I hope that that continues to exist as we try and get more people vaccinated. So now we have, we kind of had this like light at the end of the tunnel in terms of getting access to the vaccine. You know, we're having more clinics popping up in more convenient places. We're having more people being involved in helping people get access to the vaccine. Then... Why are the numbers still below 50% in terms of the amount of people who've gotten their first dose? So let's talk about vaccine hesitancy. Now, I just want to clarify that just because someone isn't getting vaccinated doesn't mean that they're an anti-vaxxer. And I put that in quotes. And sure, I know a lot of us are thinking of a very specific archetype of this cold out there who thinks that the government is trying to track, control us with this vaccine, who would rather use their essential oils and whatnot. But we're not talking about that very small population of vaccine villains. A study by Census Pulse found that Black and Latino Ohioans are actually more likely than white Ohioans to be hesitant to get the vaccine. Well, we know that there is a history of mistrust in medical systems from underserved communities such as the Black community, the Latinx community, and low-income communities. One of them, for instance, is the Tuskegee syphilis study. And um, just in case people don't know, what happened with this study is that um, health practitioners had Black individuals participate in a study, letting them know that they were trying to basically help um, figure out like a cure to syphilis. Now, what the health practitioners did not do was they didn't tell these black individuals that they already had syphilis. And so they were basically trying to watch the effects that syphilis has, and they just let these people die. They didn't actually give them any sort of treatment. And so that is what is normally pointed to by researchers and politicians and um People who are in healthcare, they might say, well, people in the black community don't want the COVID vaccine or don't want medical treatment at all because they don't trust health care because of the Tuskegee syphilis study. I know that um, Waverly Willis talked about how there is this trust and he actually mentioned the Tuskegee studies. Black and brown people have trust issues with the healthcare system in general due to things that's I happened in the past, you know, like the Tuskegee uh, experiments, things of that nature. But some other people don't think that Tuskegee really has anything to do with it. Some individuals may have trouble trusting the government because of 
just the, the history of medical racism. I can tell you, as a black woman, I have experienced discrimination or medical racism when I'm going to the doctor or when I've been working in healthcare as a secretary. I've seen the way that nurses treated white patients versus black patients. And so I can definitely say that a lot of this hesitancy is really due to current discrimination and not just historical discrimination. Blaming current hesitancy on historical discrimination is just diverting from the actual issue, which actually really might just be current discrimination or current lack of access. If you truly talk to, to you know, people of color, they have had a bad experience with healthcare yesterday or two weeks ago or two months ago or two years ago. And I worry that some by framing this as something that happened historically off in the past somewhere, we're not acknowledging that there are problems in the way we deliver healthcare right now that make people feel uncomfortable, unwelcoming, un- undervalued, or insecure or uncertain about the advice that we provide. So um, my name is uh, Dr. Brooke Watts. I am an internal medicine and clinical informatics um, uh, dual-boarded physician. I have the privilege of working at Metro Health. And I particularly remember a wonderful, joyful day at Cleveland Heights when um, our waiting room was absolutely packed, packed. It was 80% seniors of color who were getting vaccinated. And, you know, I thought, my goodness, nobody said a word to me about Tuskegee. <laughs> and what does that mean? And maybe that's good. And then, you know, we started hearing all these conversations about vaccine hesitancy as we um, moved down through the age groups. And it became clear that there was an uptake gap difference um, but in vaccine acceptance between people of color and, and white people. But race and ethnicity actually don't tell the whole story. Census Pulse asked individuals if they trusted the COVID-19 vaccine. And among those that were hesitant, mistrust of the vaccine was actually the third most common reason given. And the most common reasons for vaccine hesitancy among all Ohioans are being concerned about the possible side effects and also deciding to wait and see if it was safe. So how do we convince our community to get the vaccine? The answer is by getting the community to convince themselves. Okay, you're kind of confusing me here. How can a community that's hesitant to get the vaccine convince themselves? Well, it's sort of simple, actually. The work can be done and has already been done by passionate community members. A lot of times, community leaders or members actually have more power in influencing the community to embrace widely known decisions, such as getting the vaccine. This could go either way in terms of vaccine hesitancy, but it's had a positive effect in terms of getting the vaccine, especially in tight-knit communities of color. Yeah, um, these community liaisons, as we like to call them, have actually had a really great effect in terms of helping people learn more about the vaccine and also trust that it's safe and ultimately go get it. I think the best people are people who look non-threatening, that look friendly, someone that would appear, you know, from your local community. And, you know, it just has to be someone that I think people would find safe and, uh, and believable. So what else can we do to help people who are on the fence actually get the vaccine? I think the biggest thing in terms of trying to get other people to get the vaccine is to not villainize them or make them feel bad for not getting it yet. Everybody has their unique concerns when it comes to vaccine. Absolutely. And this can just start off with us talking within our own families. Like, talk to you, 
to people in your own life who might have concerns about getting the vaccine, but you know, you can speak to them in a way that appeals to their beliefs. You can speak to them in their language and provide them with the right information. Yeah. I think another way people have gotten others to get the vaccine, which I think is kind of an iffy topic, is the idea of incentives. You know, if you get the vaccine, you can be entered into a lottery, which is actually happening in Ohio. I think that it does have the opportunity to become a little controversial because some people who do have questions about the vaccine, who might have distrust in medical systems, instead of kind of addressing those problems and trying to, you know, dispel um, those concerns and get informed, instead they might turn around and say, oh, well, I need the money, so I'm going to get vaccinated. Obviously, we want everyone to get vaccinated, but they should do it for the right reasons. Yeah, like you said, it's not fixing the root of the problem. The root of the problem isn't that people aren't getting paid to get the vaccine. It's that they have, you know, either hesitancy because of deep-rooted historical discrimination or current forms of discrimination, or it's the fact that they don't have access to it, again, because of deep-rooted inequities. Normally, the people that take advantage of lotteries are people that feel that if they win the lottery, you know, which is already like a really small chance of that even happening that somehow their financial burdens can be in some way alleviated. And, you know, people that make the lottery are aware of this. They're aware of the people that buy a lottery ticket. They're aware of their demographics. And I think by using a system that sort of perpetuates, like, you know, poor people thinking that they can, I don't know, it sort of like take it, takes advantage of their, I guess, their like socioeconomic status, right? Because you know that they're going to buy a lottery ticket. And by trying to use that system to get the vaccine seems sort of unethical. But at the same time, it's like I feel sort of conflicted by this because it's like it's a vaccine. So it's saving lives. Right. But at the same time, it's worked. I mean, we saw the numbers go up in terms of vaccination yeah. um, rate. The vaccination rates, you know, went up exponentially um, as soon as the lotteries were announced. So, I mean, there's kind of this question of do we kind of manipulate, you know, our lower socioeconomic population with incentives? Or is it kind of like a, you know, well, this is going to save people's lives anyway, so it doesn't matter that it's kind of feeding off, you know, people's hopes and dreams. I want to talk a bit about, like, the importance of having community members spread reliable information and also equitable access to people within their own community to get the vaccine, you know, dispel hesitancy. On another hand, it's like, why do we even have, you know, why do we have such deep-rooted inequities? We can trace it back to many years of historical injustices. And it's like, the reason that so many people have, the reason like that we've learned from our research that so many people have not been able to fully trust the healthcare system, it's not because of those people, it's because of the history of the healthcare system. So to me, it sometimes feels like we need community liaisons to do the work that the healthcare system has failed to do in the past. Mm. And it feels almost unfair to have people within your community do that on behalf of the healthcare system. Yeah, I totally understand what you're talking about. But at the same time, I kind of get like a really good sense of humanity when I think about all the good work that has been done. In terms of how many of these community liaisons have had such a good effect in terms of getting people vaccination appointments, getting people the right information, and getting people to want to get the vaccine. And especially in terms of convincing that population of on-the-fence people who need those questions answered, 
I want to say that the health systems aren't working at all. I mean, we've seen all the great work that Metro Health is doing. And of course, there's so much work to be done. But at the same time, I am really inspired by all the great work that we see normal people doing. Absolutely. And you're so right that community liaisons are having such a huge impact. And so are healthcare institutions. They are making progress. And, you know, in some ways, like we can't we can't really go back into history and change it. So I think that's where the importance of community liaisons comes in, because even though we can't change like the history of mistrust, we have people that are willing to put in the effort to progress. Yeah. And I think that also this is an example of not having to have a title to have extreme influence or power um, within your own community. So what does all this really say about our health systems? I think on one hand, it shows that small fixes cannot change um, societal inequity. So things mm-hmm. like they're having an I don't want to dismiss the impact that these small, they might not, not even be small changes, like things like Uber offering free rides, things like that, that in terms of when we're thinking about societal inequity, they can't change at all. Oh, yeah, I definitely agree. I think that it is definitely not fair to underplay the great work that is going on. But I think in terms of how like these disparities in terms of how, you know, lower socioeconomic status directly correlates to people of color and just like all these disparities that have come out um, that have reflected the inequities that are present right now in Northeast Ohio and the nation that we have noticed when we see the disparities of people who are getting the vaccine. And while I think it's actually harder to make change within a broken system rather than dismantle entirely, I think that being able to like recognize the inequities is the first thing. But I think that more needs to be done in terms of deconstructing um, the inhibitors in the first place instead of trying to, like, like you said, like put Band-Aids over it. And I want to go back to what you were saying earlier about like lower socioeconomic status correlating with race. Health inequity is not just reflective of the health care system, right? It's reflective mm-hmm. of so many other systems that we have. The systems that allow for lower socioeconomic status to correlate with race is beyond healthcare. We need more than the help of the healthcare system to improve health equity. So what lessons have we learned from this? I think we've learned that every single person has a part in improving health equity. You can talk to your own family. You can help people book vaccination appointments. Like every one of us can leverage our own skills to improve access to the vaccine. So where do we go from here? I think that with all the information that we now know, I think it's time to take take it all in, take it all into the world, and just unleash our inner vaccine warrior. It doesn't mean that you have to go around and, you know, with the car and start giving people vaccines. But what I mean is that just be your community's liaison, you know, help bridge that gap between people who are on the fence about the vaccine and medical systems. And, you know, do your best to recognize the inequities that are going on and bridging that gap and improving access for all and also spreading the correct information. The inequities we're seeing from COVID-19 vaccine disparities are nothing new. 
And it's everyone's duty to recognize that and act as a representative for their communities and continue progressing health equity far after this pandemic. Well, that wraps it up for now. Thank you so much for listening today. And remember to go beyond your own bubble. This episode of Beyond the Bubble is a production of Evergreen Podcasts, written and hosted by us, Wilson Ha and Sway Tabology. Our recording engineer is Hannah Leach, and our mix engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. Special thanks to Bridget Coyne and Evergreen Podcast team for their support. Plus Nick Fletcher and Jenny Becker. Till next time. Till next time.